Alok Van Menen is a gender non-conforming writer, activist, poet, and performance artist who explores themes of gender, race, trauma, and belonging. They are the author of Femme in Public and Beyond the Gender Binary. In this interview, Alok discusses their experience reading Sex and Suits by the late Anne Hollander, outlines the history of gender and fashion, and discusses a radical reimagining of what fashion might look like outside the gender binary. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky. Normally on the show, we invite our authors to discuss their books in depth, but we're doing something a little different today. A few weeks ago, I found a really moving post written by Alok Vadmenen, a gender nonconforming writer and performance artist, about the legacy of the late Anne Hollander's sex and suits. And I really wanted to have them on the show to talk about it. So thank you so much again, Alok, for agreeing to do this. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about gender in the fashion world. I'm so geeked out. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, Well, first things first is um, everything. Are you handling quarantine okay? All things considered, I am. Um, I think the universe wanted me to like slow down and reconsider my life priorities. So I've been enjoying that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to resist the whole uh, productivity paradigm and just relax a little bit and and not it's it's actually very liberating to not feel guilt about doing nothing and just you know totally i've been watching so much tv it's like um okay so i'm watching the morning show right now that show with jennifer aniston and reese witherspoon on apple tv and it's so good i thought that was a movie no, it's like 10 episodes. And the problem is that I like start watching them at like 12 a.m. So my hours are just very, <laughs> very confusing right now. Yeah. Um, normal people just got adapted to Hulu. So that's what I've been watching. And it's just great to listen to a bunch of like cute Irish accents, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, how did you first encounter Sex and Suits? And what made you decide to post about the book in the first place? Yeah. So I, I guess the story begins with, I've been designing fashion collections for the past three years. And the reason I started to design fashion was because I understood like Anne Hollander fashion to be a legitimate art form that engages in social and political inquiry. And people were confused because they were like, why are you designing clothes that you're not mass producing? and selling. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't really see the purpose of fashion just to be about being wearable by other people. I'm interested in the production of images. So I photograph myself or I I have like a a whole team photograph me in my, in my collections. And those images are works of art as well as the pieces of clothing themselves. So because of that, I've been now invited to lecture and teach at different fashion schools across the country. In November, uh, the fashion studies department at Syracuse University invited me and I came and gave a talk to fashion students and I I clicked, uh, I hit it off with one of the professors and because I hadn't really had much exposure to fashion theory, I asked him if he knew of any scholarship on gender and fashion. And so he recommended Sex and Suits to me. I'd never heard of Ann Hollander before and I'd never really read 
fashion critics in a more sort of academic space. And I had it on my sort of to-do list for months, but now in quarantine, one of my goals is every week I'm posting a public review of a book and then giving a lecture on it, uh, as well as posting it on Goodreads. And, and part of the reason I'm doing this is because I feel like I have a knack for reading academic texts and distilling them to a sort of mass audience. And I want to just, I guess, increase education about the things that are important and dear to me, to the public. So the other week I posted my review of Sex and Suits. And why, why do you think it's important to learn the history behind fashion? So... I'm really interested in the things that get naturalized and seen as just reality. What I understand reality to be is not like a pre-discursive state of being that's just essentially the way that the world is supposed to be. I understand reality to be the result of a series of political choices and decisions, a political aesthetic. And so I'm inspired by kind of schools of deconstruction, which and compel us to take what is given and to, and to sort of disembricate it and see all the threads that actually constitute it. And I, I think that that's especially apt when it comes to fashion. As a gender non-conforming person, people constantly chastise me for wearing garments and objects like lipstick or skirts that they see as feminine uh, while presuming that my body is masculine. So a lot of what I'm doing is I'm reviewing books that reveal how interpolating my body as masculine and interpolating this dress as feminine is not actually some given objective state of being. It's the product of sociopolitical and cultural historical dynamics, especially dynamics rooted in colonialism. And so when it comes to fashion, I think that there's an entry point here because everyone wears it to raise conversations about histories of colonization, histories of gender, and to get people to understand how we're all engaging in race and gender, even if we think that we're not. Couldn't agree more. Um, let's, let's go, let's give a deep dive into that history a little bit to give a little context to the people that are listening. And, and I know that you were not the one who wrote this book, but to your best capacity, could you chart the gendered fashion from early history to the late 20th century? And how has Western fashion historically been divided, um, according to Anne Hollander? Right. So first and foremost, everyone needs to read this book. Like, I, <laughs> I am an extreme fangirl. After reading Anne Hollander's Sex and Suits, and to prepare for this conversation, I actually read the tome that is Seeing Through Clothes by Anne Hollander as well. <laughs> So I feel like I'm now like an Anne Hollander, like academic fangirl um, <laughs> because what she had, I had access to the ideas before, but what she does so well is she is an exhaustive review of the historical archive and she draws from both aesthetic as well as political tidbits to bolster her claims. Her kind of vast repertoire and understanding of visual culture and Western history is frankly unparalleled. Like I was just like, how does she know so many images? Like how much time did she spend going into the archive and drawing this out? Sex and Suits is perhaps, I think, more of an accessible Anne Hollander. And seeing through clothes, she's much more kind of obtuse and it's longer, it's more overwrought. But I think both are precious. But I think the reason Sex and Suits resonated with me so deeply is it is such a compelling argument that 
prior to the Enlightenment, in Western worlds at least, fashion was not differentiated on the basis of masculinity or femininity, but rather on the basis of class, profession, and religion, which makes so much sense because people who were, say, um, working in a factory, sorry, that we're talking about pre-alignment, so people who were maybe um, cobblers were wearing something very different than people who were messenger people. Um, that fashion's purpose was actually more about the differentiation of a class society. So wealthy people wore certain kinds of clothes versus other people. And within this, we can understand things like makeup, wigs, heels, not as feminine objects, but as class objects for the gentry. And then what happened is as part of the Enlightenment and the sort of consolidation of modern society, fashion became differentiated on the basis of gender. And Anne Hollander sort of goes into how this has to do with shifts in tailoring, so the development of women tailors in France. But one of the points that she makes really importantly is she references Thomas Lacour, whose book I've also reviewed in the past few weeks, inspired by this, called Making Sex. And the argument that Thomas Lacour has in Making Sex is that Western culture shifted from a paradigm of a one-sex or a unisex model, whereby all people were understood as inherently male, and that women were just underdeveloped males, to a bisex model, the idea that male and female were ontologically separate and oppositional categories. And so what Hollander does is she uses Lacour's argument to show how the shift in a paradigm around sex bifurcation became aesthetically displayed through fashion. So how do you prove to people that male and female are oppositional sexes? You have to shift their conception of what is natural, even though male and female human bodies have actually much more in common than they have apart. The role of gendered fashion was to accentuate the differences between the bodies. So when Hollander talks about how the suit actually reveals the legs of the male, whereas, or pant legs do, whereas a dress obfuscates them, which allowed femininity to become the repository for fantasy and fiction, which then allowed women to be seen as kind of closer to the pre-modern more likened to primitivity, sort of the realm of excess. She describes how clothes were designed to be larger for women and more lean for men as a way to hyper-emphasize bodily differences. And I think one of the strengths of her work is she shows how clothing literally shifts our perception of the body. So men's clothing made men's bodies look a certain way, whereas, quote, women's clothing made women's clothing learn a certain way. And this sort of Bifurcation of genders also was bolstered by a set of different stereotypes. So men's fashion was seen as somehow more practical or rational, whereas women's fashion was seen as more excessive, adorning, sort of garrulous, if you will. And I think that one of the points that she really makes is that most of what we now perceive as feminine fashion was actually originally worn by men. But then we've lost that historical and cultural project and it's just become naturalized. And I think thinking about LaCour in conversation with Hollander, we see how the political consolidation of two separate genders becomes naturalized aesthetically such that we don't even question why we have a binary gender sex model today. Right. And I mean, 
this book, it's, it's so expansive, as you said. It's, 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 it's expansive about the history specifically of Western fashion. Do you feel like the bifurcation of gender was specifically reified by Western ideology? And if so, I mean, was it specifically Western ideology that naturalized the gender binary? Um, does it relate to the Western colonial project at all to you? I'm so happy that you're asking this question because a lot of my work is about this very, this very phenomenon. So I'm never a determinist or an essentialist when it comes to anything. So I don't think it's just Western colonialism, but I think it is heavily influenced by Western colonialism. And let me explain. So what many people don't actually recognize is that part of the ways in which colonialism and especially European colonialism was justified was a demonization of indigenous peoples as gender non-conforming. So if you look at a lot of the initial sort of anthropological literature and medical literature about racialized indigenous people, there would be an obsession of, quote, men in skirts and men in dresses or women who are bare-chested. There'd be a detailing of genitalia, of bodily parts, and the sort of consolidation of the racial pseudoscience of, of believing that races were ontologically distinct from each other, were separate species from one another, which enabled a lot of early conquest because you weren't actually exploiting, murdering, enslaving humans. You were actually dehumanizing them such that you could justify this kind of violence against them. Then, with shifting understandings in race, especially in, in, enlightened by the work of Darwin and others, people began to understand, okay, wait, there's actually one human race, but how do we reconcile our historic and continued subordination of racialized people and our feelings of supremacy over them? Then there became this idea of a sort of racial continuum um, or a civilizational continuum where white people and Westerners were imagined as the most developed form, similar to what I was saying about the unisex model before, where males were seen as more developed females. And this method and this understanding, Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people were seen as just underdeveloped, kind of primordial, pre-modern selves, whereas whiteness was actually seen as the accomplishment of civilization. How do you aesthetically display civilizational imperative? is the binary gender system. So what you see is people like Kraft Ebbing, a lot of early sexologists, would actually say that a pure bifurcation of the sexes was only possible in white culture. So a lot of people would even say that the reason that white women were, should be subordinated is because they are um, the last vestige of animality within the white race. So animality became linked to gender nonconformity and to queerness and to existing outside the binary. And the sort of racialized civilizational continuum that happened is that indigenous gender nonconforming people were on one end of the spectrum, whereas white cis straight men were on the other end of the spectrum. And that all sort of racialized genders were graphed along this kind of trajectory. And it's of course important to name here that Part of the way that that racism operates today is that when non-binary and gender variant people say, oh, I'm, I'm actually outside of the gender binary, people say that we're making it up or that this is something new, even though the entire binary gender system was made up. And actually, there have been thousands of years of demonstrated um, existence of people outside of the binary. What is more new is the Western consolidation of a binary gender system. 
Now, there are other reasons why the binary gender system happened at that time and in that configuration that have to do with the developments of industrial capitalism, the division of a public and private sphere, the development of political theories like John Locke and Hobbes, who are talking about an autonomous political subject that have to do with property acquisition. So those are also really important at this moment. But I think that people are, I think it's really telling that people are often more willing to have that conversation around the economic relation of the gender binary than they are about the racial, colonial, and cultural imposition of the gender binary. And one final point to name here is it's not as if, it's not as if white European people were okay with just being binary gendered and allowing other people to be gender nonconforming and then demonizing them for that. There's also an orchestrated effort to impose the Western colonial gender binary onto indigenous people. So I'm thinking here about the work of Oyewumi, an amazing Garuba feminist who has a book called The Invention of Women, where she describes how the British imposed a gender system on Yoruba society that didn't actually have it before and allocated um, responsibility and decision-making on the basis of age, not necessarily gender, and then use the subsequent disparities between men and women to justify colonial co-presence. We're also thinking here about the work of indigenous activists and scholars and what is now called the United States, who have long pointed out how the residential school system and what is now called U.S. and Canada would forcibly put in indigenous people, make, them, make indigenous, quote, men chop off their hair, make indigenous women, quote, wear dresses, that part of the ways that colonization worked was a sartorial indoctrination into Western gender tropes. I could talk about that forever. So that was such an helpful. (laughs) No, it was extremely helpful. I mean, do you have any other insights that you want to talk? Because you can talk as long as you want, but if you want want me to I don't want this podcast to be like four hours. So what I can say (laughs) is that I I'm learning and I'm constantly learning um, so much of this history that has been suppressed, right? Because in order to naturalize the Western colonial gender binary, there has to be a subsequent destruction and erasure of any archive of living outside the binary, right? Because to live outside of the binary is to contradict the colonial cultural capitalist imperative to be a binary gender. So we're thinking here about how uh, when the British invaded what is now called India, one of the first things that they did was create the Eunuch Ordinances Law, which is part of their criminal tribal acts. And what they did in the Eunuch Ordinances Law is they criminalized public displays of gender nonconformity, required gender-variant people to register with a colonial state authority so that they could check on them to make sure that they were not, quote, cross-dressing, committed basically a massive PR campaign to convince all Indian people that hijras and other gender variant people were actually the threats, were stealers, were licentious, were a sign of the moral degeneracy of Indian people, and, and, and were committed to complete cultural extermination, which Jessica Hinchy in her book on hijras argues really complicates our understandings of colonialism in South Asia, which for a long time had differentiated colonialism in South Asia from other projects saying this was not committed to genocide. It was more about resource extraction. But Hinchy's work and a lot of work people talking about the sort of colonial encounter on gender are suggesting is that actually a lot of colonists sought complete erasure and annihilation of gender nonconforming communities. And when I think about that, I'm like, okay, what is so powerful about our existence that we have to literally be obliterated from, from view? And I think bringing this back to Hollander, that makes fashion so exciting for me because the gendering project of fashion was about 
taking random and arbitrary objects, recruiting them into a political, sartorial, cultural, aesthetic scheme, and I get to mess with that. So I get to wear things that the society thinks that I'm not supposed to wear and engage in a form of political work that no one even sees as political work. I think it's so obnoxious to me how much of gender studies is about writing about trans feminine people, not actually looking at the work that we're doing so politically in the world. I, 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 I bet that when I'm walking down the street, I'm teaching people Judith Butler's deconstruction of gender who would never even take up that book. But because of fashion, I'm able to carry my poli- my political wherewithal, my, my sort of cultural sensibility with me everywhere I go. And I think in that way, that's why and when, I, when I'm lecturing about fashion, what I often say is the reason that we don't think about fashion theory and fashion as a legitimate mode of political engagement is because we still have this hierarchy where accessible art forms are seen as somehow less legitimate, like pop music, but that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> I believe. And the power of drag and pop and fashion and all these quote unquote low art forms to actually be profoundly tremendous forms of, of resistance to colonial gender norms. Yeah. I mean, in that really revelatory, you know, chart of Western history, it's it's very obvious from what you were just talking about that, yeah, that Western colonialism created the gender binary to consolidate and legitimize its own power. Um, and you've gone on the record saying, and you've talked about this a little bit already, but you've gone on the record saying that Degendering fashion is an anti-violence imperative, as sort of as, as a response to this. I mean, other than walking down the street and teaching people about Judith Butler's theories, I mean, how what does it actually mean to you to degender fashion, and why is it in an anti-violence imperative? Totally. So let's just give a little background to people. Um, I created a hashtag called #DegenderFashion a couple of months ago after I gave a talk at the Business of Fashion Voices Conference, which is a gathering of leaders in the fashion world called Clothes Have No Gender. And in that speech, I, I made the remark that degendering fashion is an anti-violence imperative. And what I mean by that is we are primed in Western society to believe that random, like I said, completely random and arbitrary objects like a pant or, or a skirt or lipstick have genders. And that, in fact, the only way that we come to conceive and define gender is through these kind of material objects. Like there would be no gender without them. And so what happens is that when people see someone like me, they perceive me as incongruous because in their head, the equation that's being rendered is, quote, male body wearing, quote, feminine garments. Mm, That's not supposed to work. If fashion was to become degendered, I would just be seen as someone wearing something. It would be neutral. I'm asking for a kind of gender neutrality where objects cease to have gendered connotation and where we get to define what those objects mean versus them defining us. So what degendering fashion looks like for me is I believe the time has come for us to stop the bifurcation of fashion on gender and sex lines. That means the abolition of Women's Fashion Week versus Men's Fashion Week That means ending this idea of women's beauty products versus men beauty products. This means actually in clothing stores, having clothes marked by a basis of size, not if they're masculine or feminine. So not predetermining what kind of body should be able to wear clothes. And I think that my inspiration for this kind of work comes from two movements in fashion. 
One is the body size inclusive movement. And also thinking about people who are fat, people who are plus size. What a lot of folks in the plus size body positive movement are actually revealing is fashion is a tool through which we reproduce the myth that the majority of people, and especially women, are thin. That is just not true. The sample size phenomenon normalizes and entrenches a gross mischaracterization of body distribution in this world. And that actually, it's not seen as, it's not actually politically correct to be size inclusive. It is factually correct because that is actually how bodies are distributed. Same thing with the disability justice movement, which has actually talked about disabled friendly designs and actually adaptive design. And the adaptive design movement is actually saying, you know, there's actually huge markets for people who are looking for garments that actually map their bodies in the ways that they're supposed to. And that there's actually something profoundly purposeful, poetic, intentional, beautiful about having clothes that are made for diverse forms of bodies. And both of these movements are actually challenging how fashion has a preconceived mannequin that it's designing for, when actually there is no singular body, there are many bodies. And so I think degender fashion is actually elaborating on that conversation to suggest fashion is creating a prophecy for itself. It's creating a demand for itself. So many times people tell me, well, look, I, I agree with you theoretically, but people don't want to buy, like you're not going to have men wearing skirts in New York City next month. And I say, okay, well, if your entire marketing scheme for hundreds of years has been socially, culturally, economically priming people into binary gender categories, of course it's not going to happen tomorrow. But what if you shifted your casting, your marketing, who was on the runways, who you created the image of fashion in? And I think it, it was a really personal journey for me to start making fashion because for so long, I, I, I thought fashion was not for people like me. And I wanted to create images of myself that could contradict that and say, no, I belong. And, and I always believe, and I think Anne Hollander believes this as well, that images create possibility for alternative manifestations in the world. Wow, you really have me on a day. I'm just going on and on. <laughs> Trust me, I love it. <laughs> no, really, I do. Yeah, so you've you've mapped out very tangible ways that we can de-gender the fashion industry, taking things away like Women's Fashion Week. Um, the other, a couple of months ago, I talked to one of our authors, Leslie Davis Burns, who wrote a book called um, Sustainability and Social Change in Fashion. Um, I was wondering, in 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 addition to working towards a degendered vision in fa- in the fashion world are there anti-colonial or sustainability considerations in the future the future that you would like to have for the fashion world absolutely and i realized in the last answer i forgot to actually talk about the violence component so i'm going to address that really quickly yes, no, <laughs> so when people um talk about anti-trans violence the the one of the cores of anti-trans violence is the perception of incongruity that people say your body is an aberration because it looks like this. My perception of what a woman is, is that it should look like this. And my perception of what a woman is, is or a man is, is just looking like this. And that these perceptions have to be diametrically opposed and distinct. So when gender variant people complicate that easy and reductive bifurcation. Violence is allocated because violence is how the gender system maintains itself. Similar to what I was saying about colonization trying to completely extinguish gender nonconforming life, 
that the way that you naturalize a gender binary is you disappear through violence anyone who contradicts it such that there can be no contradiction. And that's why if we degender fashion, people can look at me and say, oh, this is just like another outfit. Okay, cool. It's not elevated to this kind of moral, spiritual, cultural crisis of, quote, mm-hmm. men in dresses. Oh, my God. Like, I'm like, there's, there's literally nothing wrong with a man in a dress because we are okay with a woman being in suits. What people don't speak about, and, and Anne Holly doesn't really touch on this, and I wish that I could speak to her about this, is that in New York City, where I live, it used to be illegal for people to wear articles of clothing that were seen as distinct from their assigned sex. So the queer community referred to this as a three-article law, meaning you had to wear at least three articles of clothing associated with your assigned sex, otherwise being risked being thrown into prison. And the Stonewall riots were actually, a, in a lot of ways, a fashion riot. There were many things, but it was a bunch of drag queens, trans feminine people, gender non-conforming people, butch people, lesbians, who were actually protesting people would perceive gender non-conforming people not even as gender non-conforming. And that's kind of what people don't understand oftentimes is the reason that we're even understood as gender non-conforming is because the visual signifiers are politicized. And so what we see with with the sort of, quote, cross-dressing legislation is an assertion of queer and trans people to actually say, there is nothing deviant or wrong about me. And that worked to degender suits and pants because, like I said, it used to be a criminal act for women to wear suits and pants, but then it just became seen as permissible. Why has that due diligence not been done to the dress? Why is the dress still understood as a feminine art form? When did that... I had no idea that that was an actual law in New York City. When did that actually get... So people stopped getting arrested for cross-dressing in the early 70s because of work from the Gay Liberation Front and other queer activist groups Mm. in the kind of post-Stonewall era. Um, But literally, people would be thrown into prison just for wearing clothes. And these cross-dressing law legislations, once again, we have to relate it back to race. Oftentimes, they originated first with masquerade laws. Masquerade laws were first created in this country, I think in the late 18th, maybe early 19th century. Don't quote me on that. Um, Which basically created masquerade laws because they were afraid that white people would pretend to be Native American to avoid taxation. So the idea behind masquerade laws was you cannot wear a mask in public because then you are defying the state's ability to control you, which is why makeup use used to be illegal in the United States. And so many people don't know this, but actually makeup was only worn by stage performers and by sex workers, not by respectable women. And that, in fact, when respectable women wore makeup, it was seen as wearing a mask that was covering their authentic identity, and that it used to be legal for men to divorce women if they felt they had been tricked by the beauty of a woman wearing makeup, right? So this country at every level has remained tethered to this deeply troublesome understanding of authenticity without actually understanding that authenticity is an aesthetic like anything else. Um, and, and I think when we're talking about the sort of anti-colonial and sustainable implications of this conversation, right? I think there's so many, 
The first one is to understand the degendering of fashion as a racial justice project and to understand trans and gender nonconforming politics as an extension of racial justice. So often they're seen as separate movements, but what I keep on trying to articulate to the world is that the gender binary is a vehicle of racism and that unless we obliterate the gender binary and the institutions and economies that uphold it, then we're always going to have a racially differentiated and unequal society. And then when we're thinking about sustainability, when we're designing clothes for both men and women, we're making twice the amount of clothes, darling. <laughs> like <laughs> if we just make one garment that can fit people of different sizes, it's less production. And we're also trying to challenge this entire narrative in fashion that it has to be a more, 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 new, new, new. And actually trying to say, and, 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 and I'm not asking for the development of new gender neutral collections. I'm not asking for like gender neutrality to be a new fashion fad. What I'm asking is for us to recognize that fashion is already gender neutral, that we don't need to make new clothes. What we need to do is shift the cultural imagination of clothes. And that's why I see Hollander's work to be pivotal today because Hollander, I think more like and more than any other person I've ever read in my life, and I, I'm an extreme fangirl here, so I hope I don't sound so geeky because I literally wept while reading this book. I just thought she was so sensational, so sophisticated. She understands the materiality of objects that are dismissed as superficial. And for me, that is feminist criticism and scholarship to actually occupy the places that are relegated to obscurity to impracticality and to actually insist that within this object is an entire ecosystem that you've dismissed because of your misogyny. And she understands how fashion can be a vehicle of cultural and political social transformation. At the end of her book, she writes about the adoption of jeans and t-shirts and how that actually allowed women in so many ways to be seen as rational to be seen as competent, to be seen as professional, to be seen as normal. But she questions, why is it that only male aesthetics are, there's a kind of relationship where historically male aesthetics become universalable as gender neutral, but historically feminine aesthetics, like a deep gown or um, like a hoop skirt, never get seen as gender neutral. And so that's why I see a lot of my work as the descendant of that kind of thinking. Why can't we do the kind of work, the kind of aesthetic, political, cultural work that was done to degender pants to something like a gown? Mm. Yeah, I just, it's like you were saying, right? When you wake up every single morning and you put on your clothes and you're about to leave the house, every decision, that kind of decision is an entire ecosystem of all these political and social considerations. And especially, you know, especially the queer community, it's always been a way for queer people to form community, to express their identity um, in a world that very violently erases them from the narrative. Is that and and as Anne Hallander also says, like there's so much power in this, right? But is that is it just empowering for you when you make that decision in the morning, or is it tiring? Is it ever like exhausting for you to have that kind of like heavy consideration just putting on a shirt? It's all of the above, you know. <laughs> there are days when I just want to like, I just want to wear like sweatpants for <laughs> like. <laughs> A, one, a onesie, but then there's the fear that I'll be misgendered 
mm. um, and that I'll just be seen as a man. So I, I feel like I have to put on quote unquote more traditionally feminine clothes in order to be intelligible. And then that, that puts me at risk for more violence. And so it's just this horrible feedback loop where I'm constantly having to struggle um, with fashioning myself in a world that is just utterly unfashionable. And I think that what I return to is how there's a lack of choice. Like choice, true choice, would require that I get to select the options. But I'm given predetermined, preordained options. We live in a template culture where coherence is granted to you from your ability to subscribe to a category and erase any dissonance in yourself. And that's not the kind of world that I want to live in. And so I, I feel like I actually really want us to have choice on what things mean to us and intention. And that's very difficult in this kind of political aesthetic economy where everything is so loaded. There's a connotation to every kind of aesthetic. Um, that's informed by generations of history, sometimes even things that we don't have access to. So I think that what I would ask of people is to develop a kind of compassionate consciousness and consideration for why we engage in the aesthetics that we do. And I think that queer and trans people have long developed that vocabulary to be able to say, here is why I'm dressing the way that I do. Here are the decisions that I'm making. Here's how I'm accountable to those decisions. But I think cisgender straight culture has not. The irony is people will always make degendering fashion to be about some kind of fringe transgender issue when actually degendering fashion will help whom the most? Men. Because as Hollander says, and I agree, Men's fashion is the ultimate oxymoron, darling, because men's fashion was literally designed to be a kind of anti-fashion that was actually just about the male nude, a la the Grecian nude, not even about fashion. Men's fashion was about turning men into sculptures, which means that we never actually understand men as sentient, feeling creatures. So actually, men's fashion oppresses men. And yet, when they hear about gender-neutral fashion, they get mad, like, I'm erasing them, but it's like, babes, it's 98 degrees outside. Climate change is upon us, and you're going to wear a suit to work? Are you kidding me? So <laughs> I, I just, I struggle because it feels very thankless. It feels very thankless to be situated at the intersections of my experience and to be doing work and to be imagining in ways that are actually fundamentally rooted in inclusivity and choice and transformation and to be minoritized, to be made as if it's just a fad or trend or fringe. And I think that's why I find so much community with Hollander's work. And I, I think oftentimes the work that I do is feels very isolating and scary. And so I turn to theory and I turn to history as a way to find kinship and community. And I think reading her book gave me conviction and gave me evidence to, to, to articulate what I've always known to be true, which is that this is a lie. When you say that this dress is a, a woman's dress, it's a lie that heels actually began as a horse riding kind of mechanism for stirrups that were worn in military settings, then were then adopted by bourgeois male royalty who had red bottom shoes back then, King Louis. So don't you dare tell me that these heels just belong to women. Are you kidding me? Yeah, wasn't it supposed to show off, you know, their calves? Maybe yeah. I'm misremembering that. That's part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, though. We all stand to be liberated from degendering fashion. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot 
in my own life as a gay cis woman and I find myself wanting to play around with masculinity all the time but feels like but it feels like it provokes hostility from cis men on the street and I think about how I was fed the same kind of sentiment growing up which compelled me to perform uh, to perform femininity in a way I wasn't always comfortable with I just feel like that kind of political choice shouldn't have to be a thing shouldn't have to and think about how much creativity we're losing because we're constantly policed into these false abstract categories. I mean, I think what I love, I'm sorry to keep on returning to Hollander, but like, as I said, as a verified fan girl, if Bloomsbury actually wants to create some merchandise, sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) I am ready for some sex and suits merch. It'd be amazing. But one of the things that she speaks to in this work that I think is revolutionary is that we do not actually take the actual lived reality of people seriously. Instead, we prioritize mythology over actuality. Meaning, when sex-segregated clothing emerged in the Enlightenment era, it was based off of Grecian sculpture. So she argues that the Grecian sculptures typically depicted men as nude and women as draped, and that therefore that image of what manhood and womanhood should be was based off of an inert sculpture, not even a human being. It's like in medicine, the anatomy images were first illustrated from dead bodies, not live bodies. What happens is that we inherit legacies of abstraction mattering more than our actuality. And the only evidence that matters is this kind of calcified mythology that has regurgitated us back as reality when I'm actually like, my experience is my reality. And and I think that that kind of argumentation is the queer movement, is that the queer movement is actually saying, how dare you have the audacity to narrate the terms of my engagement with my body, with my desire, with my presentation, with my aesthetics, with my world. In fact, queerness is an insistence on saying, I have the autonomy and the power to self-determine, self-narrate, self-author my becoming and my being. And that, yes, it is an inconvenience to not collapse me into the rote monotony of a category, but to love me is to be inconvenienced by my frayed edges. It's, It's stunning to actually say it out loud that our ideas of manhood and womanhood were based on objects that are not living, breathing things, which, which is to say that the abstraction of the gender binary imposes a sort of death and that queerness, conversely, is a refusal to live in that abstraction. Or as you said, it's a, it's a refusal to let anybody else narrate our being. On that note, are there fashion trends or outfits that you feel especially embody that queer defiance? You know, I think it's impossible to 100% defy everything because we're all implicated in the dominant grammar. But I think that what I'm always trying to do is to subvert expectation. So, you know, I'm even subverting my own expectations. I am a non-binary person which means that I am not man nor woman, nor do I subscribe to the idea that manhood and womanhood and masculinity and femininity are oppositional antagonistic systems that's so boring and aesthetically unambitious. But at the same time, 
in order to get credence and legitimacy, I had to wear dresses and makeup and skirts for years. And then I, I missed sartorially, quote, masculine clothing. I missed bow ties and like shorts. Like there's a kind of pleasure I had in wearing a waistcoat that I want to bring back. <laughs> and so in the past year or two, I've been, I've been adopting more mass, quote unquote, masculine things into my fashion, into my public self-presentation, into my performance of myself online. And I've been trying to defy even that expectation that there's one way to look non-binary or one way to look trans. And what I'm actually trying to say is that there is your way to look not the one way to look. So I think that what a lot of people see as an insurgent aesthetic, as a resistant aesthetic, is already a contained aesthetic that requires a kind of collapsing of complexity, like, oh, to be trans is to look like this, or to be queer is to be inherently androgynous. And I'm like, oh my God, no. It's actually about constant becoming and constant self-declaration that shifts and, and Hollander writes about fashion as a kind of vocabulary, as a kind of language that we use to articulate ourselves. We would never use the same words to articulate ourselves from the age of five to 55. Why are we using the same clothes? That's just absurd. <laughs> My vision of the world is that every day people wear what they feel they want to wear without having to think about whatever arbitrary gendered and sexual connotations that it has. My understanding of what liberation and freedom would look like is a deep appreciation for and a deep engagement with our, our emotional state, which I think is something that Western colonial capitalism dismisses. It just wants us to be labor and to just be rational. But I actually think that the that fashion is irrational. And that's what Hollander says. She differentiates fashion from, from just like rote dressing to be like fashion is impractical, irrational, flamboyant, ridiculous. But she says that is precisely the power of it. It's like, I forgot the name of it, but there's a art, an art scholar who wrote a book on chromatopoeia, the fear of color. And in the book, he talks about how he doesn't want to, adopt color as some sort of like progressive agenda. He says, color's power is in its strangeness, in its anti-disciplinarity. And I think about what it means to maintain the strangeness of fashion. That's what I want. I still want things like Cardi B walking around. I forgot the name of the designer, damn it. At Paris Fashion Week, she just was in this incredible floral print body suit that covered her face and only left room for her eyes and some massive hat. And I was like, this is obscene. And I love it. Like we need that kind of obscenity and that kind of shock and awe because that's what, that's what art is. Art is a jolt. It's a suspension from the rote mechanism of living. There's something so radical about you know, what you and Anne are both saying, which is just that it is such, it, the power is with us. Every, this like low, what has been chastised as this low form of art actually has all of these incredible political implications. When we leave, when we leave our houses every day and we decide to wear articles of clothing that don't conform with our gender identity, we're making a statement to the world. And I just, that defies all these systems that have worked to oppress us. I mean, everybody, not just, you know, people who have been historically marginalized, but as you said, like cis white men can also stand 
to benefit from a world that is genderless. And I just, yeah, I just want to thank you. That's all we have time for today, but I I just want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, Everything you've said has been really fascinating. And I, you know, I just, for anybody listening, you should totally read Sex and Suits. You can find the link um, on Bloomsbury's website. But I also want to plug Alok's book, Beyond the Gender Binary. It's publishing on June 2nd, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can order it from my website now. And I will link the, um, I will link it to the show notes for this episode for everybody listening. But yeah. And I just want to echo, like, please buy this book. I know that like, in this economy, in this world, people are really like, what is the purpose of literature? What is the purpose of especially theoretical writing? But Anne Hollander, for me, reminds me of the purpose of theory, especially during this time. It's such a hopeful text. It's like fun to read, which is very rare. And I, I just feel like when when I found out that she was no longer with us, I just felt this deep sense of loss, but then also gratitude for the many lives that she'll continue living in her in her beautiful work. Mm. I'm really excited for her husband to listen to this episode. I'm sure that he'll, you know, appreciate the, the legacy that this book still has like two decades later. Um, yeah. It is kind of incredible how, especially because it was originally written in the early 90s, how timeless it, it seemed. Right. Timeless, completely. Well, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. 